Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So I asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better and if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. My guest today is David Whittaker OBE, one of the UK's most important coaching pioneers. He was also my colleague and is still my friend. Starting out, David combined a successful career in education with success on the hockey field, representing England and Great Britain over 100 times. And shortly after retirement in 1980, he was appointed coach to both the England and Great Britain men's hockey teams. And during his time as coach, his teams achieved Olympic bronze in 84, European silvers in 86 and 87, and Olympic gold in Seoul in 1988. In 1989, he was awarded an OBE. He won coach of the year in 1985 and 1988, and in 1998 became one of the inaugural inductees into the National Coaching Foundation's UK Hall of Fame. In 1989, David co-founded Performance Consultants with David Hemery CBE and Sir John Whitmore, and together they pioneered the introduction of coaching to the business world. With his wife, top coach Sue Slocum, he also established one of the first coaching and development MSc programs at Portsmouth University. David has written extensively about coaching and has written three books. His most famous is the now classic Spirit of Teams. Now, David was our senior partner at Performance Consultants, and during that time, I had the pleasure and privilege of working with him extensively and also of being coached by him. I've had the fortune to work with many great coaches and many thought leaders in the field of coaching and leadership, and I can tell you that no one before or since has more successfully or completely lived the values of a coach as David does. He is quite simply the best coach I have ever met, and so I'm excited to share with you this conversation where we explore his coaching journey and his insights into how we can help our people to achieve sustained high performance. You were a teacher for... How many years? I know you've been a teacher all your life, but when did you start? I was. I taught for about uh, 13 years, 71 uh, through to about 84, 85, in combination of private and state sector. The last six or seven years, uh, I was uh, at Marlborough College in Wiltshire, um, and that was prior to going into sport full-time for three and a half years, which was prior to going into business for 20-odd years. So, uh, so a, a stint of 13 years in, in education. And it was interesting because it was a, I was in physical education and it was a, during a period of dramatic change and that's what uh, was some of the basis of my changing in the thinking of how do you get the best out of people because uh, initially it was in education gymnastics 
that they did a much more um, child-centred approach of encouraging you to set challenges to the pupils and them to express themselves individually in response to that challenge. Well, the challenge was always a question. And so, in a way, I realised, hey, there is a lot of power in leaving the child to explore this physical environment through structured challenges. And so I began to play with those ideas in other aspects of, uh, of, my t of the teaching in terms of the sport. The introduction of questions in educational gymnastics introduces you to the power of questions. Where did that take you next? Well, it, 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 in an interesting way, it took me backwards to uh, a teacher that I'd had many years before who had done the sort of development of me as a hockey player actually by asking me questions and it was so alien to the way that education was done in those days that you you sort of scratched your head and wondered where he was going with this. My experience when I was then a teacher and I reflected and I realised ah this guy knew a lot about how you help people develop as performers and it sort of tapped me back into something that had been residing in me but had been untapped. So the educational gymnasts really in a way um, lit a fuse within me to say well of course I can use this in lots of ways and if you ask a, a young child what their response was to the challenge in the educational gymnastics a week later they remember it. They say, oh, it was this, sir, and I'll go and show you exactly what it was again, because they did it themselves, they learnt it for themselves. And so I went into the skills learning in sport, and I began to find what's the challenge I can set for them to learn for themselves the way that I was going to tell them. And this was a really interesting period. And of course, to start with, I couldn't quite find the right challenge, so it was a bit slow. But as I refined my ability, I found that I could help children do things, let's say in hockey or rugby or something, that I would have told them how to do, but they do it better because they find their own unique way of doing it. And they remember it. And of course, that builds their motivation. They say, oh, I've learned that that little move that gives me an advantage in the game, gives me an opportunity in the game. And so it was from there that I realised, hey, there is so much opportunity here. That doesn't mean to say you don't tell people things, far from it, but it's another fantastic skill in the game of how do you help people learn and perform for themselves so that they own the performance and they it's useful to them and they it stays with them and they then build on it themselves so it it began slowly but then began a bit of a torrent that in a way I'd, I couldn't control because I'd say well we can put it here then we can put it there it was and uh, even tactically uh, in my latter years in teaching we developed a whole um, scheme of work called strategies where all we did was to find the challenge for, for young kids 
to learn tactically in the game. And that was really exciting because very often you think, well, you tell people the tactics. We do this and do this and do this. But actually, if people can learn through challenges of what's the best tactical response here, they can then learn that they can change the tactics according to the situation. And suddenly they get in control over it. They're, they're the leaders of the situation as opposed to me on the side of the gymnasium on the side of the pitch saying, where are we now? Oh, I better tell them to change. It was really exciting. Which sounds like something that doesn't happen. I mean, I'm, I'm qualified as a football coach and I don't remember being given those um, strategies to teach tactics so the child can, can adapt in-game mm. without, without external supervision. Yeah. So how did you do that? Well, I think, of course, behind everything, there's a whole set of processes. <laughs> um, so behind some of the work I was doing, simultaneously, there's some very good work going on at Loughborough University by Rod Thorpe and Dave Bunker in Games for Understanding, where they were playing with the same kind of principles. But if you look at educational processes, then what you tend to do is you take it out of the full game situation, you put it in small areas, small games, a very structured situation, or, which is totally ungame-like, but you say, so what might your response be? And what if this happens? And what if that happens? And in a controlled way, people learn. You don't tell them what the right answer is, but you, they know what they're trying to achieve and they find ways of achieving it. Then it's after that that you say, okay, so now we need to put it in a more competitive situation back towards the game, the full game. And it's through those processes. So what I took to the party was my understanding of learning and how to structure things that give them the best chance of the achieving a good, a good outcome of beating a, uh, a three versus two or overloading a certain area of the field or recognising something or other in, the, in whatever it is in the game. I bring that knowledge and the players bring their talents to play in the game. And between us, we find solutions, but they find solutions that they own. I may choose to bring a solution to them. That's the skill of the coach. That's why you don't always ask questions because the coach is playing the game of how do I help these people find even better responses to the challenge that they can then implement. I want as much as possible to be theirs. Occasionally, I may bring something. So with the international players, I brought the concept of how do you make a two versus two in a situation, a two versus one and a half. So you put one of the defenders in a position of disadvantage. So in a way, you've just got half a yard on them. How do you do that? And I brought the concept of that and then I let them play with it and said, how would you do this, guys? How would you move this forward so that you can deliver the ball to that person so that he's got that half yard and he only needs half a yard to make the two versus two into two versus one and a half and suddenly we're past. So it's a combination of my understanding and some of my skills and theirs. 
it is not all me and it's not all them. <laughs> but my guiding principle is how do I help them learn and perform better so they can achieve it? I want them to achieve their solution, not my solution. Because when it's theirs, they'll always remember it and they'll be able to embroider on it. When it's mine, <clears throat> when it goes wrong, it might be my fault and I don't want that. I don't want those little hiccups. So that's the sort of game I was playing and you can play that game with young children just the way that you can play it with adults. You just have to use your skills and understanding of learning in a different way. That's what you do. That's why coaching in a non-directive way is just one aspect of being a coach. But it's not a total, a really outstanding coach can use always, all the ways. So in some areas of um, counselling, which is often seen as, oh, that's quite uh, the, the, um, a way of, a non-directive way. I've seen counsellors work in a fantastically directive way. <laughs> because it's the way to raise awareness. They have got to punch through the lack of awareness, and very often they do it by going bang, with the obvious response and observation that break, help somebody break through a blockage that they've put there themselves. Other people can say, actually, this person needs much more careful approach. <laughs> Gently bringing them out so that they say, ah, this is the issue, and I haven't been true to myself about that. So the very talented coaches use all aspects. That's why the very talented coaches are continually expanding their knowledge. And do you see the, the core behaviours on the, the directive, non-directive spectrum then? Or are there other things, other skills, other areas that you would employ as a coach? Oh, I think, oh yes, I think, I mean, one would say um, there is a whole spectrum, not only of interventions, verbal interventions, method, methods, but there are lots of uh, interventions of choosing not to intervene at all. You might say that is non-directive, but that you may just say, this is, let me let this run a little bit. Let me let it run because it doesn't appear to be going somewhere, but I sense intuitively that there is something going to happen here. And I'll have to, I might want to make a more directive approach at this moment, but if I let it run a little bit, then I might, find, I might find another way, or they might find the way. So I think there's a whole range of skills in, in, inside, inside the coach of not only what's my next intervention, but what is the right, the best way to enable myself to understand what's going on and them to understand what's going on. And sometimes it's just to let things run, which of course is non-intervention, but it's controlling yourself because I might want to say, what are you doing? For goodness sake, what are you doing? <laughs> but that might be a very good thing for me, but a very poor thing for the situation. And I think one might say that's intuitive, so therefore that's a God-given gift. No, intuition is about being leaving yourself open to whatever may come up. And if you're close to what may ever may 
may come up, then you're, you're denying your intuition to work. But if you stay open as a coach to say, I believe something's going to happen here that will be useful, then the chances are it does. Even if the usefulness is that something quite negative happens. At least it's, it's, it's knowledge. <laughs> we, know where, we know where we are now. We've got something more out of the situation. Um, you know, that uh, in, in the physical side, it might be a player gets frustrated because it's not working. Ah, <laughs> now I know more about that player. Or in, in the more business situation that a person may suddenly say, well, to be truthful, I've been kidding myself all along. I really don't know the way here. And then they're open. You know, you know something new now. Something that you may have thought was there, but it truly is now, because it's been acknowledged. And you say, okay, so what do you want me, what do you want from me now? I think I need a solution. <laughs> ah, okay, well here's, here's a couple. What might you do with that? And suddenly we move forward. Whereas a minute before, we weren't, we weren't gonna go anywhere. So is, is, is that part, part of that skill as well? Which sounds long-winded, but it's not. There's, there's, there's massive energy and time taken up in intransigence, trying to get people to move. Whereas you can leave it and it appears that you're waiting a while and suddenly there's movement. And that's, and that, that's great skill of coaching. Well, and what, you, what you were also saying just a little bit earlier was the way in which you framed the context for the interaction. That was, you did that very actively, but then you, inv you invited someone to step into that space, as, you know, as I understood what you said, mm. and also as I experienced you coaching us as a team at Performance Consultants, was just an enormous sense of space in a dialogue. Um, and then suddenly things would move mm. at the most remarkable pace. Yeah. Um, so I can certainly, I can certainly endorse exactly everything that you've just described there. Every, whilst there is the seeming inaction, it, it's a deliberate choice, um, and in that sense, you're giving, you know, as, as my brother once described it, as, as doing nothing well, mm. um, but being patient and allowing yeah. something to emerge rather than to to try and force it, which is, again, it's just an unhelpful use attempt yeah. of using power, isn't yeah. it? Yes. And, authority. And I learned that from the physical world. The advantage of the physical world is everything happens quickly and in, you can see it all. Uh, that's why the sporting analogy is a good analogy. It doesn't make sport business and there are some sporting analogies that don't work. But the beauty about the physical world, theatre, music, dance, <laughs> uh, um, uh, sport, is that everything happens in a short period of time. We go to the theatre and the whole, a whole lifetime or a month or weeks and weeks happen in two hours. And we say, oh, that's fantastic. And you see everything. And that's what happens in, 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 in the physical world. It, it just is there. And I learned that during helping people learn, and this was, let's say, internationals learn, in quite stressful situations, which I'd set up, sometimes I would just let it run. And because in a way, I'd already begun to solve the issue in my head because I'd set the blooming practice up and the learning situation up. So I'd say, I'd already gone through that process. I wonder if this will help us get to where we'd all like to get to, better at this. 
So the danger was I would force it. I could easily force it too fast. But I had to help let them have the space to learn the situation and to try things out and then not work and to think about, well, what's the adaptation we need to make in order to make it work? And then suddenly you go through this period of you thinking, we're getting nowhere, and suddenly something happens. And then the learning and the um, improvements, the performance enhancement goes very fast. Then you have to say, okay, so what have we just learned? <laughs> now let's embed that learning. We've gone very quickly in that last 10 minutes. What was the learning from it? What have we, what have we got to share to actually embed that? And you think, oh, God, it was you know, very slow at one period, turgid. You think, God, this is really slow. And then you get it. I think the same in teams in business. The leader has always travelled the road beforehand because they're helping others travel the road. And they say, we'd like to get there, and we all know we'd like to get there, but the dialogue is the process, the understanding of each other, and you need space for that. You do need space. You're right. And it can, the danger is it gets frustrating for the leader. And I've worked with leaders in business when they just get frustrated. So what they do is they try and force it. <laughs> and of course, once you start forcing it, you're not taking people with you. <laughs> you're either shoving them through or you're dragging them through. And of course, that's when people get a little bit resistant and they start digging their heels in. And then suddenly all the energy is into the intransigence and not the not moving, the slowing it down, as opposed to the moving. Yeah. And, uh, and people, you know, it's... Then you've heard it in business. People say, yeah, we gotta, but we've got to get there yesterday. <laughs> well, if you wanted to get there yesterday, you should have started last year. <laughs> you know, you, I'm afraid you started yesterday. So we've got to take our time. And you've got to... And there's a... I mean, there are so many books where you pick a snippet out. And there's a, there's a book about walking with donkeys. And apparently a, a donkey will never travel through an area where it's very uncertain and they'll dig their heels in so to speak they'll be there <clears throat> a guy uh, went on the walk with this very uh, thoughtful thoughtful man who and uh, uh, from business business guy and he learned that if he walked ahead of the donkey who he'd built the relationship with and showed the donkey that it was okay perhaps it was a dark area of the of, of bushes over a narrow track if he walked and showed it and came back, the donkey, because it trusted him, would then walk with him. So interesting. Such a simple thing that he learned that the shortest time of helping the donkey through was actually just to show that it was safe. And then come back and walk with them. Don't call them. Don't stand behind and shove them. Don't drag them. Just walk with them. Lovely metaphor. A lot of things for leaders to do is to... Walk with your people. You've already travelled the road. One of the greatest things for leaders is to understand that if you've travelled the road, you can't cause other people to travel it faster just because you know what's ahead. You have to help them tread it themselves. They may be able to tread faster as they gain confidence in themselves and you. It's in yes, it's interesting. Great, great, great fun, the learning process. 
So I want to come back to that. Um, before we go any further, though, I just wanted just to recap on your career. Um, because I'm familiar with the highlights and you, you were talking about your teaching experience there, so perhaps it would be helpful just to just to summarise, if you can, in a, in a couple of minutes, just you know, how you got to, you know, to this wonderful semi-retirement in, you know, in, this, in this beautiful garden that you, you told me that you take care of for a couple of hours a day. Yeah. Um, well, the education process I was in teaching at a time when there was real challenge and change in terms of how you teach, coupled with my own desire and understanding from sport, because I was keen to play sport well, I wanted to be an international performer, and so and hockey was my game that I decided at 18 that I had more chance than anything else. I was too little for rugby, they were all getting big then, let alone now, and I wasn't skillful enough as a cricketer to make the grade. I could get to a pretty good level, but I couldn't make the grade. So I chose hockey. What was interesting is, uh, I was quite late developer at hockey, so I didn't get into the international squad until I was about 23, 20, 23 years old. Uh, and what happened there was interesting because I'd fought my way to that, and I was a pretty good player. But then when I got to that level, a coach then proceeded to tell you how to play. And I thought, that's interesting, because I've been working with kids about not telling them everything, but helping them utilise their great skills. And here we are, stuck back where <laughs> I was 10 years ago. And it wasn't that the coaches were bad people, it's just that that's the way they'd been educated about being a coach. And what I noticed was that we couldn't, as a team, get the best out of the combined units because we weren't having the dialogues between the team members to make it the really best at international level. So actually I performed in England teams that I thought significantly underperformed in relation to their potential. Whereas at club level, we outperformed. And we were European, in the, in the 70s, we were European champions three years in a row and we were in the final four years out of five, something like that. Never been done before by an English hockey team against the Dutch and the Germans and the Belgians who had much big, more professional uh, setups. And it was because we actually had the quality of dialogue between the players that at international level we didn't quite have because the power was somewhere else. The power was with the, the management. So you did it the management's way and they didn't encourage you to have the dialogues to, to do your own way. So that was a very important learning process for me. Then, in the mid-80s, I met up with John Whitmore and David Henry. I went on a, a programme that they ran called A Question of Style. And really what it was, was them bringing, John bringing the ideas from the inner game and all the things that he'd learned from Diana and the, the counselling, and David Henry from his perspective of actually bringing a much more questioning approach to draw the potential out of people. And what I realised is that is exactly what I, the journey I'd been on with, the, with kids, and by now I was now the coach to England hockey, that I was trying to introduce in the teams thing. So we had John, individual performer, 
um, in a, a, a very clear position of a racing car, <laughs> of there's only one person <laughs> responsible here, to David Hemery in a, a broader area of athletics where sometimes it may be a, a team element in, in, um, uh, <clears throat> in say, a relay or certainly um, between coach and performer and only the performer can do it in, in athletics and a much more team element from hockey. And I said to them, look, I'm doing this. I'm doing this stuff. This is really interesting. So we began to work together, initially for other sports coaches. And then these sports coaches, they were business people. In the week, they were managers. At weekends, they coached sport. And they kept saying to us, this is relevant in business. So we went into some companies like 3M. And we did some programs about the work we were doing and the challenges that we were putting forward. And then a guy called David Evans from a company called the Grassroots Group that's involved in extrinsic motivators, sell this, get that, very successful company. He found out what we were doing. He met David Henry and he said, hold on, yours is intrinsic motivation as is extrinsic motivation. What if we put the two together? What might we produce? And he asked me if I would go inside his company as a director and set it up, which is what I did in 1989. And then in 1991, for a whole combination of reasons, we brought it out separately. Because in 1991 there was a recession. David Evans's company was linked to the WPP group, Martin Sorrell's group. They wanted to retreat to core business. We were not core business, we were a, a nice to have. So we said, that's all right, we'll go, we'll go independent. And then we started building it up from there. And that, that entity was Performance Consultant. We set it up as a Performance Consultant. So I suggested to John, I said, and David, I said, I think performance, you know, we call it performance coaching. Why don't we do it as performance consultants? And so we said, yeah, let's do that. And, but, you know, so you, we said, we're on our own now. But what we'd learned through the two years is who to target. It was very interesting because the marketeers in business generally wanted the improved performance, get rewards. So they were very interested in what the grassroots group did. The human resource people or people with teams and they were the budget holders so they had their own training budget. They were more interested in how do I cause these people to choose to work together better? How do we enable our, our people to give us more of their time and energy without having to try and pay them loads more? What is it that has to go on in the dialogue? And that was the target area. That was the market where we had a real opportunity. And yet, you, you, so you, you really, you're setting up on your own in the middle of um, what really was quite a nasty recession. Yeah. 91 to 94, five. Mm. Um, so what was it like running a business about a thing called coaching in that time? Oh. Well, at one level, it was very scary because like in our kind of world, if you look three months down the line, you say, oh, there's some work. If you look nine months down the line, you're going to die. <laughs> because long term, was <laughs> there was no guarantee. So it, that does focus the mind, but it also makes you realize that a really poor focus here would be death. I think we come back from that and we'll focus just on what we've got and how we find ourselves more. 
one of the great things straps that we used and it worked beautifully and because it was the truth was that in a recession what you need is more people that you have left to give you more you want more from less because they were shedding people and actually coaching is a way of enabling people to choose to give more than they've been given before it may not be more hours but it may be more focused effort it actually may be um, being able to do things faster because you have better dialogue with your other team members. Maybe we don't duplicate things that we, we once duplicated, but we didn't realize we were doing it. So there are ways of, of finding you've got fewer people now, and yet you still want good performance. That's what coaches do. They help people learn faster, or they help people improve their, pro, their progress quicker, that's the game we've been in. And of course, because we'd had high profiles in sport, I'd been with a team that had won Olympic gold and Olympic uh, bronze medals. David had won a gold medal. John had been a European uh, saloon car champion. We'd had a history of getting there ourselves. That got us through the door. No doubt about it. Of course, that was a great advantage. However, if you didn't do good work, that they could measure as successful, either from the way the people changed or performance changed, you weren't going to stay because recession meant there wasn't much money. <laughs> so you had to do good work. We grew rapidly during that period because we, and the companies that we went to and, and, and engaged us were the companies who were actually shedding the people because they needed to improve their performance and keep the morale and the emotional engagement of their people. So it was interesting. Recessions, recessions were always scary, but very good for us. At the beginning, then, in 89, 91 onwards, um, you have this thing called coaching that was education and sports-based, and then you bring it into business because Basically, the sports coaches insisted because they were business people. What did you find was the same about coaching in business and coaching in, in sport? And what was different? The difference is the timescale. So in sport, um, it, it's, although you've got a long timescale, things happen quickly and you, get, you, 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 you do something and there's a response to what you've done, and the feedback's pretty fast, either a game or improving skills and things like that. In business, you might help people shift their behavior, but you may not see the impacts of that for a quite a time downstream. So you, you, it requires more trust in the process because there's a danger that if things aren't changed by tomorrow, you wanna go in and say, oi, we decided, you said you were going to change, and it hasn't happened. So it just takes a little bit more time in business. Um, and so um, there does need to be that acceptance of that, that people in, in the business world, it, things will take a little bit longer, even though you want them to be quick. They can't, they can't be quick. Um, there's an easy result in sport it's much more sophisticated and different in business. And you have to accept that. We as a people saying, I think coaching can help, have to accept that. 
and the business people themselves you know, recognise that, that it's, it's a very simple thing in sport, but it doesn't mean to say that that analogy or that picture does not give you um, good principles by which you can work and integrate into the, into the business world. It, it just means that it's going to take some time for that, for that to shift. Um, and, and for you to uh, necessarily achieve things. There'll be some real good short-term gains and there'll be other things that will take longer. Um, so there were some similarities, there were some differences. The beauty about the business world is it, it enjoys the metaphor because it means that they can come out of a complex situation, see things in a simple, straightforward environment and then they themselves can say, well, I can see how that can work and I can see where it's going to be more challenging to work and I'll, we may have to do some things in order to make it work in that area. But bringing it out of the, out of the complex into a much more straightforward, simple, simple picture was a great advantage. Um, and I think, therefore, business was receptive to that. I think one of the great telling points of did business see value in the concept of coaching is the amount of investment the business have put into it. What business does better than anything is if they see something of real value, they invest in it because they know downstream they're going to get gains. The number of businesses that have put so much investment in what we would call coaching, but a way of working with people, it can only confirm with me that they saw enormous value in it. I mean, they've, uh, they've, they've got all sorts of things, research, they've probably done as much research has gone on about coaching in business as coaching in sport and academic research. So people have been doing M, you know, MSCs. So there's all sorts of things have happened within the business world um, uh, as coaching has gained traction and growth and respectability. Because initially it's a, you know, is this, a, is this a, a fad? Is it a gimmick? And the answer is, well, actually, no. It looks, it may look like it. And we, we challenge people to ask questions because we're, we were very good at telling. So that's why we challenged them to ask questions. We took it to the other end of the continuum and said, so what if you just talk, uh, asked? And we showed people that actually, if you just ask, what happens is people become more aware and their performance can improve. It doesn't mean to say that telling's bad. It's just that's the way you put the challenge, isn't it? You put the challenge at the other end to make people sit up and take notice. The truth is, is you bring it all together. The truth is that great coaches in business and leadership in business, in sport, in theatre, in all aspects of life, work across the whole area. They're, they can do all. They might have a preference for doing it in a certain way. That would be their preferred way, but if they're really skilled, they'll know when they have to shift and do it a different way in order to elect, enable the person to move forward. Because the most important thing as a coach is your next intervention. Not your last one, because it's gone. Your next one. And are you going to do the same as you did before, style of intervention because that one worked, or are you going to be open to what's going on in the other person or in the team and play your hand accordingly? And that's, that's the great skill. So you do need 
a whole range. That's where it's no long it's no longer a uh, just a skill. It's a whole way of working skillfully with people. That's why that, that's why I think it's got real traction in business because they realise it's so good, and that's why that's why it's important in sport and music and drama. That's why everybody's a coach nowadays. You know, they're Weight Watchers. The advert for Weight Watchers, fantastic. My coach gave me great support, says the lady to the television screen. Well, it's faster. I've heard of everything now. We've got Weight Watchers. They're not, they're, they're not, they don't monitor people, do they coach them? It's fantastic. It's wonderful for the, the word coach and coaching because everybody in, in all walks of area, life where they're looking for, how do I help change behavior and help people develop and help people feel better about themselves, they're emotionally in a healthy state, I'm a coach. Fantastic. Now, in 1989, we knocked on the doors. We said, have you heard about coaching? What's that? You mean you give them a good shouting out at half time <laughs> in the team meeting? That was often the perception of coaching, that you told them what to do. You know, but that's old style coaching. Because if you, you know, if you miss a tackle, the coach on the sideline says, hey, John, you've missed a tackle. And you say, yeah, thank you, David. But I knew I was going to miss that tackle before you did. So you own, the old style only tells people what they already know. You're not performing well. <clears throat> oh, really? But deep in your heart, you know that's true already. Really skillful coaching goes much, much further than that. Well, don't waste time with that. What people know is what people know. Help people move forward. That's, uh, that's, that's the game. So I think you've just given a really good definition of coaching in describing the Weight Watchers coach. <laughs> um, what for you are the principles of coaching? Well, at the, at the, at the simplistic level, if you take it right down to the very core of performance improvement, because that's the purpose of coaching. How do I help people go forward in life, in the chosen area, whatever that may be? You know, it may be their life, it may be their a skill, it may be their weight, whatever it is, is to enable people to get really high quality information about what they're doing and how they are. Now, in our coaching, we would call that awareness. Not awareness like a marketing, I want to give general awareness about to the population. No, real awareness, high quality, relevant input. That's what awareness is. And that comes actually <laughs> from quite deep psychology. You know, Carl Rogers and the stuff there. And that comes from counselling. Uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, until you're fully aware you have a problem and you accept that, you ain't going to solve it. So really simplistically, high levels of awareness in the person. So how do I enable the person I'm working with to gain that awareness? All right. What that tends to lead to is their ability to do things differently. So until you're fully aware that I've got the problem with drink, I'm not going to shift it. And that's the responsibility, or that's the ability to respond. So really, they're the key principles upon which move. Now, how you generate that is 
a whole range of potential interventions. I'd prefer you to find it out for yourself. So what are the challenges I can set you? What situations can, can I set up? What questions can I ask? What is it I need to present to you that enables you to become really aware of this situation and what's going on? And I trust that if, as you become more aware, you yourself will begin to take responsibility for the next step forward. However, you, I may recognise that you're blind to a certain thing. And I may have to say, I've got another piece of information here for you, Jonathan, about this that you haven't mentioned. Let me know when you'd like it. And now I'll begin to understand a bit about you, whether you don't want to hear this other bit or whether you're going to be open to it. And you may say, well, I'd like to hear about that, Dave, and I'll bring it in. So in a way, I'm telling you something, but my intention is to add to your level of awareness. We may have to talk around that extra bit of information because you may challenge it a bit. Or I may need to get a third party or another picture or a video or something like that to say, well, actually, you do do that. And I show it you on the video and you say, well, I never knew I did that. Wow. But that must have been a one-off. Oh, well, actually, let me show you this other piece of video or this other piece of dialogue. And so together, once you're open to the inputs, we increase it. We give you as high, high quality as we possibly can and then help you move forward. So that sometimes people move forward without you as the coach ever knowing they're moving forward. Because they're, they've, they've got the level of awareness and they say, oh, well, I, you know, I, I can see how I can respond to that. But they've done it all in their head. And the coach is sitting there thinking, well, I'm not quite sure what they're going to do. But they've solved it. That's fantastic. Or it may be that they said, we need, I want to talk about all that now. Now I've got all that, I'm not quite sure which is the best way forward. Ah, oh, right, so now we've got to talk about taking the responsibility. And the skill of the coach will be to say, to make certain it's your solution, not my solution. And that's the same when you're working with international players as it is you know, in a sport, as it is with somebody, Weight Watchers, as, as, as it is with everything else. And questions are incredibly powerful, and I'd always prefer a question. But there are many other inputs, video, audio, another person's story, another person's observation, input from me. They're all valid. Everything's valid, provided it's helping you, as the person who's being coached, move forward. If it blocks you, I've made an error. <laughs> I brought something in that's caused a problem. It shut down your awareness, not opened it up. It's closed off your sense of responsibility as opposed to open it. And now I have to look at myself. So whenever I coach the international team, end of every training session or end of a team or a match, first thing I had to do was to say, okay, what part did I play in that success, disappointment, halfway there, whatever it was? What part did I play? Could I have done things differently? Once I've looked at that myself, then we'll go and talk to the team and, and get them to say, say the things. So the coach is also not immune <laughs> to awareness and responsibility <laughs> because that's the only way we move forward. So those are you know, sim simple 
absolutely dead simple, but that's the beauty of it, but very sophisticated in the interact. That's why, you know, you cannot be a coach with a couple of weekends. You know, you can't do it. It's much more than that. You can get a certain level, but then it's a way of choosing to be with people. If you want to be a, if you want to be a, an outstanding leader or an outstanding coach, a developer of other people. So I want to come back to that, that wonderful description you just said there, a way of choosing to be with people. Um, I just want to recap for a moment though on responsibility and what you mean by that. Okay. So what I mean by that is, I suppose at two levels. One is the ability to respond. So I, I have gained more information about this and now I'm very clear about how I can move forward. And at the other um, level is to say I'm choosing this way forward and because it is my choice I am taking ownership of it and full acknowledgement that if it doesn't go well, it's probably going to be down to my implementation or something else coming in. It's not to the decision-making process of, of, of us get, me getting to that point. So that you, you then, because it's yours, I want to do it for me. If, it, you know, it, sorry, if, it, if it's my solution, your solution if it's a, a, the coachee, their person wants to do it for themselves. If it's my solution as the coach, okay guys, this is the answer. In a, unless I can help them take the ownership of it, then if it doesn't go right, they'll push it back to me and say, well, it was a silly idea, Dave, anyway. I never thought that idea would work. So it's about how do I bring that out in the person for them to take the ownership so it's theirs. So in your, in your um, 1999 book, Spirit of Teams, you describe responsibility as accept, acceptance of the outcome of a course of action. Yeah. In that sense, it, it, it's, and so what you were talking about earlier of, of raising awareness or, or maybe choosing to, to offer something um, is that you're, you're attempting to increase awareness whilst maintaining or increasing that that acceptance of the, basically the consequences of your actions and choosing to act um, and, and also moving forward. Yeah. Is that what you were? Yes. Brilliant. Yes. So, so there's two levels of that response. One is just by becoming aware, responses emerge. And then I say, I'm going to choose that response. And I take full responsibility, or I take full, I acknowledge that now the implementation is mine or ours, and I have to take, I have to accept that what happens happens, <laughs> and, and I should do my utmost to follow it through. And I think when you've, when you see people who take real responsibility, it doesn't burden them. It actually excites them, you know. And, and I think when you when you think, oh, I've got, I've got so much responsibility, 
I feel weighed down by it. It may be you've got a load of responsibility, but without full awareness. So you haven't got the awareness of what this may lead to, <laughs> the excitement of it. Actually, it may lead to you having less work to do in the future. So I think, I think responsibility is an exciting thing, not, not a weighing down thing. What you just said there would suggest that, um, is that going back to that uncertainty, the wonderful story about, about leading, leading the metaphor of leading the donkey, of, of demonstrating that there isn't, you know, that it's safe to do so, mm. is that if you do give someone responsibility without awareness, then all they're facing is uncertainty and potential yeah. danger. Yeah. And that then is a thing that, that could hold somebody back yes. and, and, and get them to refuse to take ownership as you want them to do as a leader. Yeah. Is that right? Exactly. You may actually get to the end of a dialogue. You may be having a dialogue and you feel, ah, oh, I, I sense this person. They really know a way forward here. But I also sense that there's a bit of fear. Now, fear may be your friend. It doesn't have to be your foe. Because fear gets things moving in the body so you can, you can deal, with, deal with things that come up. But then, oh, I think a very good coach would, would actually help explore that. They may just reflect that, I notice that there's a fearfulness here. Is that true or is it just something that's coming over? And what is it that you're concerned about in the implementation of this? So you may actually have to go back to raising their awareness <laughs> to get the inputs so they can, they can fulfill the commitment they've made. Because sometimes people can see all the way through to, oh yes, that's what I've got to do. But now, oh God, that sounds a bit scary. <laughs> ah, so how do we help you through the scariness? So what is it that's scary? Oh, it's this and this. Oh, well, actually, it's not so bad after all. So it's, uh, you know, sometimes taking the responsibility doesn't lead to an absolutely clear path ahead, like the analogy, the metaphor of the donkey. So you may have to say, ah, oh, now let me lead you through that murky area, <laughs> or let me help you see what you need to see as you go through that murky area, because you've got to go through there together. So in the business world, I've worked with many people who have decided they've got to have a conversation with somebody. Absolutely got to have it. Initiating that conversation is a very scary thing. So the next issue, so okay, you know you're going to have a conversation. You even probably know when you want like to have that conversation. How are you going to start it? What's the bit that's going to engage the person with whom you're going to have this difficult conversation? What, how does it need to be? Anything that will enable them to say, not only am I committed to the conversation, <laughs> but I know how I'm going to enter into it. I know how I'm going to go in the room. I know how I'm going to set it up. And that will give me more chance to have the, a, a, a good conversation. Because I think many people have made, ah, oh, this is the right decision. And then they've walked out the door and they've seen three brick walls ahead of them. <laughs> they think, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. I know, it, I, know it's a good, I know it's a good out decision to make. I know it's a good next step. Ah, oh, but what if I do, what if they do that? And what if this happens? And if you haven't explored that, I don't think you're going to do it. So are we moving then into the area around <laughs> self-belief then? Is that the, what we're touching on there? Mm. Well, I certainly, if you leave, if as a coach, you, um, 
you leave somebody in a state of of lack of self-belief so so you you can only see yourself failing rather than succeeding then they're unlikely to shift forward they're unlikely to take the step so i think this this you see the interesting thing about self-belief is that it's very difficult to tell somebody to believe in themselves with any impact it's well-meaning oh what david you should believe in yourself more yes maybe i should but I don't. Ah. So what is it we need to do that cause the person to see their capabilities and then believe that those capabilities are going to move forward? Because that, I would say that that, that self-belief thing can, can block a lot of good intentions. I can't see myself doing that. Ah, right. Well, if you can't see yourself doing it, chances are you're going to have a hard time getting there. So you would find in a dialogue, I think, if you're working at that level with somebody, that that is the key issue. Because you've got to, you've got to solve something at the level below which it manifests. So a person can be unsure of their capability. I'm not quite sure if I've got the skills to do this. Okay, hmm. So the chances are, it's the level below that I got. I so I'm going to work on your capability skills. But what I re the coach will say, what I'm really working at is your belief in those capabilities that it's going to help you get there. Okay. I may or may not say that, but I, I as a as a good coach, you say okay. So. Let's have let let me promote the dialogue, create the situation where I'm going to enable you to see and experience that those skills you have will get you there and you've got the ability, capability to implement those skills. And I would in, my intention is to how do I help that person believe in themselves more? Believe and it may be in that small area as opposed to generally self-belief. Self Just in that small area is a starting point to help move them forward. Does that make sense? Okay. So, I'm, uh, so I may play that area. You may play in that area. And I think that is why coaching is not by rote. Yeah, I mean, there's always things to help you. There's tools and techniques to help people kind of grow, whole series of questions. We've done all that. But they are just little skills, techniques that are useful in the coach. But one of the most important things is you say, what's the area we really need to work here? And if it's self-belief, that's what we've got to work on. Maybe that then gets us into that wonderful phrase that you just said um, a little time ago about, I think it was something around how you choose to be with people. With people. So how do you choose to be with people? Yeah. Is that a question? Yeah. I choose to be with them 
as a contributor, quite a lead contributor to their learning and development and as a resource to them. That I trust that unless I show care and attention to their needs, particularly with some senior people, nobody else will. There's nobody to care for them because they have to do all the care in other people. So I think sometimes the more senior you're working at, the more care you have to be prepared to give. But at the same time, you cannot compromise their learning about the challenges they've got and how they're going to be better. So you have a delicate balance to how do I say the difficult thing the thing that everybody wants to say but can't say it, and at the same time, illustrate care. And I think that is, in a way, that sounds the antipathy of being somebody who's trying to drive performance. Because <laughs> they're the words people say, well, I'm driving performance, you know. Mm, you're probably coaxing it, actually, you know. And sometimes care is a very important aspect of, of that. Um, and that's not soft, because care can be tough. You know, there's, you know, people use words like tough love and things like that. And in, 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 in marriage, in, with the people that we deeply love, sometimes in order to illustrate our love, we have to say the thing that nobody else will say, because we're the person in the position to be able to say it and get away with it, i.e. keep the relationship, sustain the relationship, because that's what you're, you're doing as a coach. You might, you want, in a, in a team especially, you want to sustain the relationships while at, while at the same time face into the difficult stuff. Because if you don't face into the difficult stuff, then you're not going to move forward as a team, and the other team, the teams that do face into that difficult stuff, are probably going to get the edge, because they'll, they'll get to another place a place where you can't get to because you haven't faced the difficult stuff. And that, yeah, that's, that's, that's very challenging for a coach to, uh, to choose to be in a certain position. I never wanted to be the font of knowledge. It wasn't the game I was in. I knew what I was bringing to the party, but I also know that the people I'm working with are bringing masses of stuff to the party. And they'll know, in some areas, much more than I'll ever know. But I'm bringing certain things to the party. And I need to make certain that I use those very skillfully. Um, so, yeah. I want to lead, help lead their, be a contributor to leading their development. I want to be a resource to them. Um, I want to show that I care for their development. Those are important, yeah. Yeah. As a coach then, what advice could you give for helping someone to choose to be more helpful to another? Well, 
I think you have to let go of ego. Um, there's people, there's a danger of getting trapped in enjoying being the coach. You, one should get enjoyment from the process and the outcomes and the growth in the other person. <laughs> but I think there's a danger of saying, um, I'm defined by being the coach. Because the danger is then that you, you will want to be pushing in more about what's going on here. Remember, I'm the coach. So I'd, I'd say, let go of ego, understand the reason you're there, choose to be in the right place for the other person, face into that there'll be some tough moments and you owe it to the process and to the other person to face into those tough moments for them, but that the outcome is theirs not yours. The performance belongs to the performer, not to the coach. I know what I've done, but I want them to enjoy and feel great about what they've moved forward. And I'm happy that if I if I reflect on it and I think I did a good job there, that's good, that's good, that is great, that's exactly my role. I facilitate the move forward. Part of it may be they need stuff from me. Sure, I'll go to my bank of expertise and I'll bring it out. But that's all I'll do. I'll bring it out as a resource. That's the skill. And if you get acknowledged as being a great coach as a result of that, fantastic. That is lovely. Because then people will say, oh, I'd like to work with that person. Or let's bring that person in because they've got some stuff. But don't get trapped by that. Don't get caught up and tripped over by getting attached to somebody's view that you're a great coach. Because all that matters is the next intervention. It's the only thing that matters. <laughs> so you're absolutely down to the next intervention. So I need to focus on the other person or the situation it's what's going on that's important because that will help me find the next intervention to help them move forward. Not, I'll sit here and I'm clever. I've lost the awareness immediately because I'm wrapped up in myself. Uh, it's uh, not a thing that a lot of people can easily do. I accept that. There's a, there's a skill in being a coach because you, you sort of have to give something up. No, you, uh, you, there's a danger, there's a danger that um, you think, oh, well, what am I doing here? You know, I'm not being, look I'm not, they're not looking towards me. <laughs> the team isn't. No, they shouldn't be. They should be looking to, occasionally they look towards you for stuff that you're bringing, but really they should be looking at each other because that's, that's where the interactions need to be between the team. Um, so there's a, uh, there's some interesting skills in being and in, in, in philosophy of being a, a, an outstanding coach, I think. It's, it's more challenging for the ego. 
ego can get in the way. I am. Um, one of my questions I wrote for you was um, was what, what makes you a great coach? Um, and I was thinking to myself, he may not answer that question. <laughs> so, because he'll, he'll challenge me on well, what, what makes. And so, what I rephrased it as was, what contributes to the success your coaches enjoy? when being coached by you. In accepting, there's also this, this element of, of you saying to me, I remember one saying, I wouldn't describe myself as an expert of coaching, I think he said. I'm thinking, well, if you don't describe yourself as an expert, then there aren't any. Mm. Right? And this was yeah. after you'd been at it for, yeah. for 20 odd years. Yeah, I... So... Mm. The, I recognise I have some really useful and good capabilities in the coaching space. I really, I, I recognise that, I acknowledge that, that I've got some skills. And in a way, it's easy for me because I am naturally quite reserved um, pretty modest. I don't shout about stuff. So it plays to that space quite nicely. The downside of it is it's tougher work for me to bring stuff to the party that is important. And sometimes I, I, I would acknowledge that I may be a little later in bringing some stuff to the party than other people would. So there's parts of my personality, there's parts of my skill set and my preferential area of and way of working um, that are really good for helping people move forward. And I think I'm, I think I'm, I think one of my real strengths is to leave that space for people. And so when there are some very difficult things in teams and things like that, I am very comfortable leaving that space more comfortable than many other people. So actually, when there's really difficult things, I'm probably more in my element than if, if things are less difficult and they could move for, forward a bit faster if I, could push, if I pushed it a bit. My, my natural inclination is not, quite, is not to push quite as hard as, say, some other people, when it would be perfectly okay. The door, the door might be um, less resistant than I imagine it to be. Uh, so I recognise there are some strengths and... and, uh, and, and and um, areas that can trip, can trip me up. But I think the thing that I hope people experience with me is they know, they absolutely know really quickly, one, I'm there for them. And I'm not there for me. Two, I leave space so they can speak about whatever they want to speak about. And I, three, illustrate that I am, I try and show them real trustworthiness and confidentiality. Every step of the way I try and show that to them in, in either how I say things or what I say or after some experience that actually it's okay to say what you want to say in this space. It will go no further unless you choose that it goes further. 
And so I think because I've done that, I've had things said to me in the first time I've met people that others might not get into the dialogue for two or three hours later. And I think that has enabled me to be um, effective in some really interesting and quite, and quite difficult areas. So I, I would say, and also in the, um, in the sporting world as well, I was able to have dialogue with people. Some of it was, you know, I, I remember having a dialogue with a very, 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 very talented performer. And, and I said, my fear is that you don't let me inside your head. I don't, I'm not, you don't let me know you. He said, oh, no, David, I don't let anybody inside of me like that. I said, well, if you don't let me inside, I'm not quite sure if I can help you get the best out, you know. And it was a very interesting dialogue between the two of us. And it ended there. But I noticed more, more came out later. A bit more came out later than it might have done. <laughs> And uh, and so I'm I'm grateful that my natural disposition has been like that. I'm very grateful that I, I've been able to sort of uh, leave the space for people without without slowing everything down. I mean, the danger is people think that slows everything down, and my 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 belief is it it, it doesn't because sometimes the, the the, the bits you need to get through are so small, but they're so tough. They're so, I mean, the, the person, a person choosing to let you inside of their head more. Poor, that's a big step for that person if they're incredibly independent and they don't let people inside. The fact that they might say, well, OK, I'll let you in a little bit. That's a massive step. And that took a lot of courage by that person to, to not necessarily say it, but then to allow it. So, um, I, I, I'm, I, no, I recognise that that is uh, something that I've always been interested in and therefore I've been willing to let myself be, uh, be very patient, much more patient in that, in that area. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join our community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organisation. You can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organisation. If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe and if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.